Today's scripture reading comes from Revelation chapter 12, verses 1 through 12. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of their testimony. For they loved not their lives, even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Lauren. Let's pray. Holy God, we love you. We acknowledge the beauty and the difficulty of sometimes trying to understand passages like this. But we also acknowledge that Holy Spirit, you do not rely on our own knowledge. You do not rely on the abilities of a preacher. Your word is powerful on its own, and you transform us and our hearts and our minds. And so we long that you would do that again this morning in your name. Amen. Again, good morning in town. Um, If you don't know me, my name is Steve Yates. I'm one of the pastors here. Also, if you didn't know, you live or at least are attending church this morning if you're in the building in the south. If you are watching, I don't know where you are, but I'm really, really happy you're here as well. Um, The south is a unique place. I'm from here, grew up in Jacksonville, Florida, um, and then spent some time away. Never thought I'd come back, and then you all were wonderful and called me back. And now I don't ever want to leave. But there is one thing that never left me, no matter what, and that is the official religion of the South, not Christianity, but American football. 
Uh, I grew up, as I said, in Florida, and um, if you ask 90% of Floridians, there are two colleges in Florida. No offense to anybody who would argue otherwise, there are two colleges in Florida. Uh, Most of you, when I tell you that I went to um, college in Florida, you assume I went to one, I went to the other one. Um, I grew up uh, uh, loving this one team, and then I was given a scholarship to Florida State University, um, and so I show up to Florida State University in 2004, um, this tiny, scrawny kid who is... Um, completely blown away by the idea of being at a large 45,000-person university. I get there, and immediately I'm awash in the traditions and the excitement of Florida State football. Um, If you had met me one week after going there, having never cheered for Florida State a day in my life, you would have believed that uh, Jesus had already come back and he had anointed Florida State football and all of the rituals and face paint and excitement and chants and cheers. I mean, they were in my blood. It was glorious until we lost the very first game that uh, I watched them play. Um, It actually wouldn't be until uh, January of 2014 that I got to feel what some of you Georgia fans are feeling right now, uh, the great reality of winning a national title. And I remember the, the morning after that game, having really not gotten any sleep staying up, um, I was in the airport flying back home, and I remember just I'd see random strangers coming up and seeing that I was wearing Florida State gear, and they would congratulate me, or they would cheer with me, or they would jeer me on. But, but I, I felt like I was a part of something amazing that had happened. Victory at the beginning of the season, to me, felt certain until it wasn't. Victory at the end of the season was certain, but I did not know we were going to get there. The passage that we are uh, delving into today, Revelation chapter 12, can be very complex, and we don't want it to be. There are lots and lots of symbols and imagery there, but I want to remind you, week in and week out, we've been telling you two very, very important things. One, a lot of this imagery and symbolism comes from the Old Testament. You and I growing up today in the 21st century in America, even if you've grown up your whole life in the church, you might not be so steeped in some of this language that it's weird. That's okay. Also, these symbols, they're not some Bible code for us to to decode and to figure out hidden knowledge. But they are representative of real things, real realities that have real implications for us. That pattern of of victory and then kind of a squishy, difficult middle and then victory again is exactly what is happening in the vision of Revelation 12. And it has incredible implications for us in the Christian life, especially if we lose sight of all three of those pieces. Victory. Struggle in victory. And victory. So let's talk about this vision this morning. 
unpack it just a little bit and then talk again about the implications of its pattern. So we have two controlling images here in Revelation chapter 12. The first one that permeates throughout is this idea of a woman. And the woman is pregnant, at least at the beginning of the vision. Obviously, she has a child. Um, that child uh, is Jesus. And, and that child, interestingly, does not play a massive part in the story himself. We see that he is swept up and protected by God there in chapter or verse 5. The, whim, the woman is not a direct analog to Mary. Um, rather, we see her crowned with 12 stars. That's an Old Testament image of Israel or the people of God. Joseph, in his dreams in Genesis, uh, saw images of 12 stars, um, this idea of kingship and authority. This is the people of God. This is the, the incubator, especially at the time of Jesus' birth, at least. The Jewish people, the Jewish remnant, who believed in God and were following him, and this idea that God used Israel as, as again, an incubator, as a, as a preparer, as a key part of the plan whereby he would come to earth and make all things new. The other image we see is of a dragon. And this one we don't have to think too hard about because the scripture literally tells us that the dragon is... Satan, the dragon is um, the devil, all of these names that we see. You may come from a culture where dragons are uh, typically thought of as a bad thing. Probably if they're thought of as a bad thing, you actually got it from here. If you grew up in a culture that does not see dragons necessarily as a bad thing, it's okay. But there is a sense here that we see in chapter 12 that um, there is a, there's a pitting of one who has great power, authority, even ferociousness against really a, a person in one of the most vulnerable points at their life, a woman who is about to give birth. If you've ever been in the delivery room um, or your living room, if that is where that delivery had to happen, you know how vulnerable, how painful, how difficult that moment is. But we see here in the first vision, it goes by very, very quickly. The woman gives birth. The dragon tries to take advantage of this moment. God protects. And in fact, again, the, the, the child is swept up caught up, but the woman flee, flees to the wilderness, verse 6 says. And the wilderness, um, again, may seem like a scary place for us, but in the Old Testament, the wilderness is almost always actually a place of provision and protection by God. Think about it. Hagar, when she is fleeing from Sarah and from Abraham, she goes in the wilderness, and it's in the wilderness. She thinks she's about to die but instead, God comes and she names God. She is actually the first individual in all of Scripture to name God, God, El Roy, the God who sees me. Israel, in the same way, when they leave the, uh, the Exodus out of Egypt, where do they go? They go into the wilderness. They think they're going to die. God provides for them. He gives them manna. He gives them 
provision and protection from all those around. And, and this pattern just repeats itself. We could talk about Elijah. We could talk about a number of the prophets. We could talk about the Israel in exile. We could talk about David just over and over and over again, this idea of the wilderness. Then we see a, a second vision or a second part of the vision. Again, they are not concerned. John is not concerned with linear writing. It's not a, a, a style of Hebrew or Greek writing. And so um, he's not necessarily saying verses 1 through 6 happened, now verses 7 and following is happening. But it's just kind of another layer of the vision. And this time we again see the woman and the dragon. We see the dragon and this time the dragon is fighting against Michael the archangel and his angels. Michael is also a player in the Old Testament. He pops up in the book of Daniel one scholar says particularly here that uh, John is not, can, uh, he's not worried about trying to tell you who Michael is or not. Again, it's not as important as simply telling you that the dragon is a loser. The dragon keeps on losing again and again. And that same scholar actually says that um, the reason you don't see Jesus going up against the dragon here is because why? Why, why would you know, an NFL player play a realistic game against a five-year-old. The idea that God is actually almost belittling himself if he were to bend down to fight Satan. They are not foils and never presented that way in scripture. Again, the dragon loses. He goes after the child. He goes after the woman. Again, she is protected and provided for. And then we're going to see towards the end of the chapter that the dragon gets so frustrated that he decides he can't go after the woman herself in that moment. He can't go after the child. So he is going to go off and make war, the scripture says, with her other offspring and implying there this idea that there will be people coming after Jesus, the church, us, and the dragon makes war against them. So there again, you see that very pattern. You see the dragon trying and failing. You see the dragon going after the people of God because he has failed. And the fact that chapter 12, chapter 12 through 14 actually play a really interesting role just in the arc of Revelation as a whole. This is the crank up of the roller coaster before you hit the final gigantic hill. We're going to see a couple of visions over the next couple of weeks that prepare us for what is presented as the final encounter. The dragon has always lost. The dragon is frustratingly fighting and losing. And we're about to see the dragon lose for the final time in Revelation ending with this great celebration of the victory of God over sin and Satan and death. Victory, victory in struggle, and victory. That is the pattern. Now, before again we, we go into the um, kind of the implications of that for our day, I, I do want to just put a teacher hat on for a moment. Because again, as I've told you guys before, I was raised on this book and was very much caught up in the idea of Bible codes and numbers and trying to make sense of things. I really just don't want you to lose the fact that 
God wins in this passage. The fact that the church, even in the midst of persecution, as Peter said, is victorious in this passage. The implication is not us trying to figure out what 1,260 days might mean. Um, in fact, another thing that, that's huge here is because we have this, this image of the dragon or the devil, it's amazing actually how much scripture doesn't talk about Satan um, and how many of the things that you and I think about Satan um, actually are cultural things that have been brought into our discussions about the Bible. For instance, um, Satan is not a name, it's a term. It's Hebrew for accuser. And so, uh, as we see in places like the book of Job, Satan actually hangs out in heaven a whole lot. Isn't that interesting? I thought Satan fell. It's unclear. And it's meant, it's meant to be unclear because the Bible doesn't concern itself with you understanding that aspect. We don't want to know Satan's history. We want to know that he loses. We want to know that Jesus wins. So in the same way, when we start to read passages like this dragon, seven horns, ten horns, seven heads, his tail sweeping down a third of the stars from heaven, we don't know actually what that means. And we don't, we don't know for certain if that's implying a previous war in heaven or something in the future. We, we simply do not know. Again, let's bang it into our heads. When is not the point. It's the what and the who. The dragon fights. The dragon loses. Jesus wins. So as we wrap ourselves in that, victory, Jesus winning, the dragon losing, and I keep saying it, struggle and victory, and victory again, the dragon losing, Satan losing. I ask myself, and I want us to ask ourselves this morning, the implications of that for our faith. And really, I'm sometimes, despite kind of being somebody who talks a lot when I get around you, one, I'm kind of an, an introvert. Um, I talk a lot, and then I go, you know, into like a cave for three hours, and I can't talk to anybody because I'm super tired. Um, but I also end up um, actually being more and more of an Eeyore um, the more and more I get alone. And, and so when, when I think about this pattern, I actually look at my own life and I actually think about not, oh, what were the wonderful implications of, of this pattern for me? I, I think about when I have lost the pattern. And, and I'm compelled to kind of just bring that as our structure this morning for talking. What does it mean if you lose sight of any of the three categories that I've talked about here? Victory, victory in the middle, and victory again. What happens if we lose any one of those? Well, the first one, the, the first victory, is this idea that Jesus has won. Jesus has victory. There's already victory. And it's not pseudo-victory. It's not hoped-for victory, like when I was sitting there not able to sleep because I was so excited about Florida State playing, knowing we were going to win before we got absolutely slaughtered. Um, it's not that. It's actual victory. Jesus dies. Jesus comes back. We don't believe that Jesus died and we hope he's going to come back one day. He already came back. 
There's a assurance of victory over sin and death there. And in many respects, that event, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, is the pinnacle of all of history, and it ripples out in all directions. In some respects, the entire book of Revelation is cleanup that we're talking about right now. But what are the implications for losing that? I mean, obviously, Christianity is based around the death and the resurrection of Jesus, right? And so there's, there's a level at which if you don't acknowledge that victory, that you're not a Christian. I mean, this is what Peter says. Believe in your heart, confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that this stuff happened, and you will be saved. But I would actually venture to say that there's a lot of us that we would acknowledge that Jesus is coming back to make all things new and that he is Lord. And we would acknowledge that he is with us even now, but we lose sight of this first victory. And when we lose sight of the first victory, we lose sight of grace. We so emphasize Jesus coming back. We so badly want to be a part of that role which is called on yonder that we sometimes grew up hearing our grandmothers sing about that that we, we, we desperately must earn our place in that army. We must fight to be a part of that number. And we can lose sight of the fact that we are already past tense talking about the victory of Jesus. Grace is already fully assured for you and for I, and for me. If, if, we were, if we were not like that, and this is what you, can, you and I can slip into, we show up on a Sunday, for instance, and we see the confession there in the program, and we go, oh, I need to confess my sins so that I can worship, so that I can hear from God. If, if somehow it's almost transactional, that if I don't confess my sins here, I'm not close to God, and therefore God isn't going to love me this week, or he's not going to give me that, that, that infusion of the Holy Spirit to get me through this week. No, that's not how God works. Victory is assured because it has already happened. And so grace is not a hypothetical that hopefully maybe is true. It is true. Jesus has already died for your sins. Jesus has already paid for your sins, past, present, and future. God has already grieved over your sin. And he lumped it all on his son. God is not mad at you. He is not disappointed in you. but not because he's just some laughy whatever God who just loves everybody and it's not a big deal. No, it came at wonderfully great cost, but it is already paid. It is already done. The implication of forgetting that means we live in anxiety and fear that maybe God doesn't think about us what we always kind of hoped he did. It's not true. Not only can we forget about victory that's already happened, but victory is also coming. Jesus will win. While Jesus has already won, this does not somehow negate that. This is not the empire strikes back. Jesus has already won once final. There is also this conclusion, and we're getting to that right in the book of Revelation. 
the serpent will finally be defeated, even though he already was. The end of things will happen, and the implication of that victory will happen. God making everything new. No longer living in a world where sin happens, where crying happens, where tears happen, where illness happens, where pain happens, where loneliness happens, where depression happens. No longer living in that world. What happens if we lose sight of that? There's a whole lot of us who confess Jesus, and we really are believers in Jesus. He really has transformed our life and our heart. But we lose hope. We lose sight of what is to come. We get so buried in what is happening that God loves us and I'm going to hold on to him. But the reality is, you know, life sucks and then you die. There isn't this sense that the things that we deal with in our life, God will enact justice. The things that we struggle with and cry over, God will defeat That this life is not all there is. This world, if you care about it, it actually looks in some ways, friends, as bad as it ever will look. And I'm not trying to be apocalyptic there. I'm just saying sin is everywhere and corruption is everywhere. Sin's always been here. I'm not trying to argue that somehow this century was better or worse than that century. No, it's just that The world as it is, is as bad as it ever will be. And this should give us great hope. You get to spend eternity in a world that is not like this world, that is infinitely better. And friends, that washes away so much despair. It washes away so much boredom. I mean, the number of times I talk to children and because of culture, they still have this idea that if they die, they're going to be bored on a cloud with a harp. No, God invented color and light and sound and jumping and creation and incredible things. You are as bored as you ever will be right now. I mean, we laugh about that, but think about how much horror that comes into your life because of your own boredom. I mean, when I'm bored, that's where sin gets a hold of me. When I'm bored, that's where depression gets a hold of me. When I'm bored, that's where things gray out and I lose color and I lose sight of God. It's funny to talk about it that way, but also it's very, very, I'm very, very serious. Finally, We don't just lose sight of the beginning and we don't just lose sight of the end. We lose sight of the middle. And we could spend a whole hour on this, this uh, theological concept called the already not yet. But it's the belief that in all honesty, things, there are some things that have already happened, right? Victory in Jesus. There are some things that will happen. Jesus coming back, making all things new. But there are also a bunch of things that overlap. I mean, think about it. You already have been transformed by Jesus. Full stop. You once had a heart of stone, Ezekiel says. Now you get a beating, pumping heart of flesh. You were alive. You were dead. Peter just talked about that. At the same time, I act like a dead guy all the time, and so do you. One day, you will no longer act dead. You will not be able to. We're in the middle. But if we lose grace by losing sight of the beginning and if we lose hope 
because we lose sight of the end, then what we lose sight of in the middle is the implications of both together. You see, what we end up doing often as Christians is we schizophrenically, manically jump between one and the other. We can't hold both victories at the same time. So a couple of examples. examples. When somebody dies, we react usually one of two ways. If they were a follower of Jesus and they're part of the family of God, we know for certain that they're with Jesus and that we will also see them again and for eternity. And yet when someone dies, we feel incredible despair. We are broken and we start to question, God, how could you let this person die? God, how could you not listen to my prayers? God, why, 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 why? Or we do the exact opposite. Sweet, grandma's with Jesus. You're not allowed to be sad. We have celebrations of life, not funerals. We talk about people going and hanging out with the man upstairs and playing golf with their buddies. What does scripture actually teach? First Thessalonians 4 tells us, grieve, but also as one who has hope. You get to feel both things. And in fact, you're called to. Here's another one, culture war. Do you know some of us are so surprised that people sin? We're so shocked when people who are not followers of Jesus who have been transformed by him act like people who are not followers of Jesus who have not been transformed by him. And this can get us incredibly angry because we lose sight of what Jesus has done. He died for broken people. And it can get us so angry because we lose sight of what he's going to do. And so things like abortion should break us. And at the same time, we should have incredible compassion. Things like war should anger us. And yet Jesus called us to pray for our enemies. We live in a middle. Revelation 12 gives us the final example, which Peter already brought up, persecution. These people literally are being persecuted by the devil himself. And yet they have victory by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Their victory does not come from their level of grit. Their, li- their victory does not come from their level of wealth or their ability to just run away. No, they endure. Why? Because they both know where they've come from and they know where they're going. And this enables them to be real people. One commentator of J.R.R. Tolkien's Lord of the Rings, Jim Wirt's not here, so I can say this, right? (laughs) Um, Commented on the elves. If you're familiar with the story, the elves are, are somewhat stoic, not completely. But he said at the end of the day, the elves kind of live this weird half existence, right? Because they remember the way things used to be and they're sad. But they've met who makes things the way they are. And so they know it will not endure forever. A great introspective question 
diagnostic for you, friends, today is this. What does it mean? Are your actions, the way you parent, the way you work, the way you live, the way you play, what you watch, what you listen to, what you consume, how you interact with politics, all of the things of life, are they impacted by both victories? What does it mean for you to live in the middle where what has already happened is true and what will happen is true and thus you live here with both of those things mattering today? That's our call as believers. It's a complicated life makes us hurt and scratch our heads quite often. It's why we're called the community, because it's way too hard to do alone. But it is also what makes us different, that Jesus has transformed us, and Jesus will transform all things, and we get to be witnesses of that in every avenue of our lives. Let's pray. Jesus, would you just do that? Would you cement both realities into our lives even as we speak now? It's not easy. It's a moving target, God. We throw ourselves on your mercy. And we know, because we've already seen one victory, that your mercy is true and real. And we know, because we've seen the other one, that your mercy endures forever. Pray this in your name. Amen.